Well, again, I'd like to welcome you here. If, if you're visiting, we're glad that you've joined us. This is a unique Sunday uh, in the whole year. Once a year, we do this Lessons and Carols service. It's a service that many of us look forward to. And so if you would be here any other Sunday this year or next year, you would see us preaching through uh, the Epistle to the Romans. But these few Advent Sundays, we focus on the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we will do this morning. I was thinking as the readers were reading, it's interesting, every year that we do this, we meet together and I walk them through the process of, of reading the readings and I always forget at least one thing, okay? And this year I forgot to remind the readers to read the scripture citation before they read the passage. Uh, and so uh, totally on me, my fault, but as I was sitting here listening, I thought one of the things that does is it helps to emphasize the unity of the whole story. We read through passages from Genesis all the way through the Gospels, and it sounded as if it was one story, and that's really important because it is one story. One story about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of God's people, and so here we see that very story proclaimed in John's Gospel in the first chapter of John. That's the passage I want to speak with you with uh, about this morning. Before I do that, I want to ask you to consider two scenarios, I think, that will help to frame this passage this morning. Two scenarios. One scenario would be your ideal Christmas morning, okay? The other scenario would be Christmas morning as you actually experience it, all right? So here's, I think, the ideal Christmas morning. You are gathered with your friends and family, and everyone kind of wakes up in their brand new Christmas pajamas and they uh, uh, eat breakfast together. Someone's prepared a meal, and it's a really good meal. And then after breakfast, you together read the final reading of your Advent reading. You've been reading all the passages through the month of December. You arrive at that final passage. You read it together as the culmination of your reading. And after you do that, having oriented yourself to the meaning of Christmas, you go to the Christmas tree, and, and there beneath the tree are just dozens of presents, neatly wrapped. And you exchange presents with one another, and oh, how beautiful it is. You give presents, and people are so satisfied in the receiving of the presents that they get. And, and you get presents that tell you, man, somebody's been really thinking about you. They knew what you wanted. They paid attention to the details of your life, and they've given you this wonderful present. And you spend the rest of the day in conversation with your friends and family talking about how wonderful this time is together and enjoying those presents you've just exchanged. That's the ideal Christmas morning, isn't it? It's probably the morning that you're even right now thinking that you're going to have two weeks from now, okay? Now, here's the, here's the Christmas morning as it usually goes. All right, everyone wakes up on Christmas morning and there's varying degrees of grumpiness. Maybe that's because you didn't sleep well. Maybe it's because of the lingering cold you've had for the whole month of December, uh, but everyone has breakfast at their own pace because no one has enough energy to pre prepare breakfast on Christmas morning. They're so worn out from all the Christmas festivities. You think about reading an Advent reading and you realize that you're about 10 days behind in your Advent reading. And so you say as a family, we're going to scrap that idea and we're going to punt for next year, right? We're going to hope we can do this next year. But it always happens the same way, doesn't it? And then you move to the Christmas tree, and the giving and receiving of presents typically looks like this. Those who are receiving presents are kind of thinking, well, that's not exactly what I wanted, right? And there's not really 
all the things that I'd hoped to get, but I guess this is okay. And, and you kind of do likewise. You receive presents and you're thinking, well, I thought they knew me better than this, right? Why would they think I would ever want that? But you kind of muster up a smile, a little bit of thankfulness, and then the rest of your Christmas day is kind of one degree or another of, un, of uh, unpackaging those presents that looked really nice on Amazon, but they turned out to be a bunch of cheap plastic, uh, not nearly as nice as you thought they would be, right? You ever experienced that Christmas morning? I, I have too. I know what it feels like. Why, why does it inevitably feel like our Christmas mornings ultimately result in something like that? Why does that happen? You know, most people would say it's because of the commercialization of Christmas, and maybe that's part of it, but I, I do believe the problems that we experience on Christmas morning with our, our, our dear loved ones, those problems are more deeply rooted in the problems of humanity, aren't they? They're connected to the, the brokenness of a world that has fallen into sin and, and hearts that are corrupted and, and, and uh, enraptured in dissatisfaction and pride. That's the culmination of what we experience on Christmas morning. Whether you know it or not, most of our Christmas traditions, they are, they are deeply rooted in the birth of Jesus Christ. And so is the giving and receiving of presents. You know, Christians for almost 2,000 years have given and received presents as a reflection of the gift of God in His Son, Jesus Christ, that we receive. And so it was designed to be that the presents that we give and the presents that we receive would be a small picture of the gift of God and the giving of His Son, Jesus Christ. That that would be done every year as a reminder. Now listen, I, I think as we think about our own giving and receiving then, what is really helpful is to orient our hearts around the actual story of the giving of Jesus Christ. What can we learn about the gift that God has given us? How does that help us in the ways that we give and the ways that we receive? Okay? So I want to just briefly point out three brief observations from John chapter 1 about the gift that God has given us in His Son, Jesus Christ. Here's the first one. As you read through this passage, you can't help but note that God gives us this gift in humility. He gives us this gift in humility. Now listen, if you've never read John's gospel, you might not be aware of the fact that John writes in a different way than the other gospel writers do. John doesn't write in a technical way like Luke does. He, he doesn't write extensively like Matthew does, nor does he summarize like Mark does. John speaks in a very philosophical way, often. And if you're reading through the first 14 verses, the, the passage that Frank just read, you're probably thinking, well, he doesn't mention Jesus at all. He doesn't mention him by name. And no, he doesn't. He calls him the light. And he calls him the word, right? These are, these are phrases that John will use to try to capture the transcendent nature of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. And so here he's describing Jesus and he says something interesting about him. In verse 10, as John is describing the coming of Christ, he says this, he was in the world and the world was made through him. And as a matter of fact, that's a reflection of everything he said in verse 1 and 2 and 3. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him 
was not anything made that was made. And so I want you to hold that idea in your mind just for a second. Jesus Christ, very God of very God, who was not made, who existed before the creation of the world, that God being described in John chapter 1, John will also say this about him in verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here's the two ideas I want you to try and reconcile in your mind. Eternal God, creator of the universe, by the power of His voice, bringing all things that are into existence. He is the creator, and yet, verse 14 says, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It speaks about the humility of Jesus Christ. You know, we are often enamored, excited about, we are often uh, encouraged by the idea of someone who is of a high station in life coming down and walking among normal people. This is what happens uh, when we get really excited about a very famous person who, who goes into like a, a second grade classroom and they read a book to children. We say, oh, how amazing is that? That, that pop star, that athlete, right? Or they walk into a restaurant and they just kind of dine with regular people and they, they give a nice tip. And, and we're so excited about that, aren't we? Because it's, it's so uh, extraordinary that someone who is that great and, and that exciting and has that many achievements that they would, they would humble themselves and they would walk among us, the normal people. How great is what John describes in John chapter 1? Very God of very God who brought all things into existence decides to humble himself and to walk among his creation, to take on the form of a human being, to carry alongside with us our, own, our burdens, our suffering, our temptations, to live as we live and yet without sin. And so Jesus Christ humbles himself and walks among his people. How amazing is that? You know, uh, Someone once said, this is a very popular definition for humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Uh, uh, it is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less, right? It's not thinking more lowly of yourself, but it's being preoccupied with yourself in a less degree, okay? And, and what we see in John chapter 1 is that Jesus Christ demonstrates this because while he was yet God, he thought of his people and he humbled himself by taking on human flesh and coming down to his creation that he might redeem us. And so first, we must recognize that the gift of God is done in all humility. Let me ask you a question. How would your Christmas morning festivities, how would they change if they were done in humility? How would Christmas morning be different if everyone in your family and all your friends and everyone who gathers together on Christmas morning came to Christmas morning with a humble heart, right? We, our Christmas mornings are often sort of epic failures because we approach it with pride, don't we? It's a, it's a pride that says, well, you know, I hope I'm going to get some nice things today. And, well, that's not exactly what I wanted, and I really do want the thing that I wanted. And we have pride even in our giving, don't we, right? And the pride in our giving looks like this. Well, I spent a lot of money on that. They better like that. Okay? Uh, or, you know, it really hurts my feelings because I tried really hard on that. 
okay? So it all is about me, right? There's a, there's a, a, a pride issue that is inevitably happening, happening on December 25th in homes all around this community. It's a pride issue. How would it change our Christmas morning if we all came together and we said, how can I serve these people? How can I serve the people I love, right? We'd be tripping over one another, trying to outdo each other in love and in honor. What would that look like? It'd be absolutely amazing, right? Even in the things that we receive, it wouldn't be so much about the things we receive because we wouldn't even care. We'd just like, how exciting it is that you even thought about me. I love that you got me a gift. I don't care what it is and because we'd be thinking about others, right? That's, that is what God does in the sending of his son, Jesus Christ. Okay, very God of very God, and yet the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Here's the second thing I notice about the gift that God gives in his son, Jesus Christ. It is not merit-based, okay? It's not based upon what we do or say or have done for God. And you know, let me tell you something. You may not realize this, but a lot of our gift-giving is merit-based, it's kind of like, what, what have you done for me? And I'll reflect that in the way I give a gift to you, okay? And if you don't believe me, let me just kind of refresh your memory on some of the conversations you've been having the last few weeks. I would be willing to bet, as you were making your Christmas list, one of the questions that comes into the equation is this. Well, what did they give me last year, right? You do that? What did they give me last year? That will instruct what I give them this year. And there's all kinds of different ways that that plays out, right? It goes like this. Um, well, last year, I gave them a gift that was worth $100. They gave me a gift that was worth like $20, okay? This year, I've learned my lesson. I'm going to give them a gift that's worth $20, all right? That's a, it's a merit-based gift-giving, isn't it? Or maybe you make a list of your friends and you say, okay, here's the people that I would consider my friends, but man, that friend... I needed them twice this year, and they were nowhere to be found, okay? I don't think I'm going to give them a gift this year. Maybe just send them a Christmas card. That'll tell them how much I care about them, how much they've done for me this year, okay? Whether you realize it or not, our, our gift giving is really a, 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 a merit-based employer-employee type relationship, right? How much have you done for me, and then I'll kind of reciprocate, and then maybe you'll reciprocate back to me. There's, that's, there's a law of diminishing returns there, right? Because you inevitably end up uh, doing less and less for one another if, if you kind of follow the logic of that thinking. This is not the way that God gives of his own son. Look at, again, uh, verses 10 and 11. Verse 10 says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. You see the two negative phrases there? They're the two phrases that begin with yet, okay? These phrases tell you about the posture of humanity towards their God and the giving of his son, Jesus Christ, okay? And it says this, the world was made through him, yet they did not know him. You know what that means? The creator of the universe who spoke all into existence, who knits us together in our mother's womb, who is the only one responsible for our, our very existence, 
brings it all into existence, and the creation, specifically humanity, says, who are you? I don't know you. Hands off. You are foreign to me. I want nothing to do with you. I do not know you. And that's the response of humanity. We, we, We see this even in the gospel story, don't we? Right? Why is it so important that we see the, li- the birth of Jesus and we see that he's born in lowly estate in a humble manger uh, with no fanfare and no celebration and no one could really care, like, who's that being born out there? We don't care. We don't know him, right? The world did not know him, though the world was created by him. And then it says in verse 11, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. I actually like the way that it's written in the Greek uh, the Greek says that he created the world, uh, the world knew him not. And he came to his own, but his own received him not, right? And that kind of puts the emphasis on the not, they did not. The word receive actually means uh, to alienate yourself or to isolate yourself. The picture that is being painted in verse 11 is one like you might have seen in a, a juvenile classroom where there's a bunch of students and then someone who is new or different walks in, right? It's a new student. Maybe they've moved from a, a different country. They speak a different language. But they kind of look different than everyone else. And it's obvious that they're different. And what typically happens in a classroom like that is everyone kind of steps away from that person, don't they? And if you're a good parent, you're always telling your children, go towards that person, right? Go find them. Go serve them. Go f- have fellowship with them. But the description in verse 11 is of a... Christ who comes to his people and his people step away and they say, no, 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 you over there, we're over here. Not only did they not receive him, they isolated from him, they, they made him to be foreign, they said, you will not be near to us, right? That's the description that John gives when Jesus Christ enters into the world. And you know the beautiful thing about that? The passage says this, right? It, it says that, that he made the world, but the world did not know him. And that he came to his own, but they did not receive him. And yet, to those who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. Right? It, it doesn't say that when they had done enough, or when they loved God enough, or when they had a desire for him, or when they had checked all the boxes and met all the criteria Then he gave them the right to become children of God. It says, though they didn't receive him, and though they did not know him, he gave them the right to be children of God. The gift that God gives is not merit-based. It has nothing to do with what you can do for God. Frankly, in the equation of salvation, God doesn't care. He knows you have nothing good to give him. He knows that you're born in sin and that you live in rebellion to him. He knows that and yet he gives you the right to be called children of God. How would Christmas morning change if our giving and receiving of gifts was not based upon merit but it was gracious like the gift that God gives to us? I, I was thinking about this. If you want a good exercise that maybe could stretch you, here's an idea When you're doing your Christmas shopping, I would love for you as you're making your list, at the bottom of the list, go ahead and write the name of the person that you would consider your chief antagonist, your enemy. Who's the person, if you had to write one name, the person who has has this year caused you the greatest headache, okay? 
write their name down, and then go buy them a present and give it to them on Christmas, okay? Not in a sarcastic way either, right? But in a way that says, hey, I just wanted, I wanted to bless you, so I got you a present. It has nothing to do with what I think you or I deserve. It's gracious. I just want to be gracious. How would that change the way you celebrate Christmas? Could you imagine? Yeah, you're, you guys are thinking, this is crazy. Um, not going to take that idea and do that. Um, but it, it, would, it would certainly help to frame the giving and receiving of gifts in a more biblical way that reflects the gift of God through his son, Christ Jesus, okay? Here's the last thing I notice in John 1. I, I notice that the gift of God in his son, Jesus Christ, is valuable and costly. It's valuable and costly. You know, um, when we're getting ready for Christmas, there's a you know, few things that we always do, and there's one thing that always happens probably around the end of November, the beginning of December, my children will come to me and they will ask, Dad, what should we get for so-and-so, okay? Help us make a Christmas list. We want to know what should we buy them and what should we make for them and, what, you know, and it's really cool because um, they love receiving gifts like all children, but they also love giving gifts. They like to see kind of the, the, the response that people give when they uh, get gifts, so they, so they love to do that. And uh, inevitably, we'll have a conversation. I th- say, I think maybe you should do this for them. And they'll say, well, Dad, what should we get Mom for Christmas? And I always say, well, if I knew what to get Mom, I would get it myself. Um, <laughs> but uh, not, not really. Um, we, we have conversations like that, and they're asking who, what type of presents to get. And, I, and this is what I usually tell them. I say, a, a good gift has at least three ingredients. It's thoughtful. It's intentional, and it's costly. And, and that always produces conversations like, what do you mean costly? I don't got a lot of money, uh, so uh, what, I don't know how that works, Dad. I, I explain it to them. Not costly in the sense of money per se, but it, it should require something of you, right? It, it, it should be something that you have to work for, something that you invest time and energy into. It should be something that you've thought about, something that you will expend your resources on, something that you invest yourself in that will make the person say, wow, you, you have thought about this. You have put time and energy into this. It is meaningful to me because of, of what you have done in preparing it. That's what I mean by costly and valuable. And then I'll always tell my children, that's what most people want, but I'll take a big screen TV, okay? Uh, and, and, I, and I do say that, but it's usually the joke. Um, not being serious, okay? So costly and valuable presents because they're, they've, they've been invested in. They have required something of us. In John chapter 1, John tells us that the gift of Jesus Christ is costly for at least two reasons. First of all, it is costly or valuable because of what it means for us. Again, look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You hear what John is saying? The gift of God in his son, Jesus Christ, is valuable to you because it means your adoption into the family of God, right? That's what it means, the right to become children of God. And you know what it means to have a right. It's not like maybe it's something that is yours or if you do enough, it's yours. It, it means it is inherently yours. It is now part of your identity. It's something you lay claim to. It cannot be taken away from you. That's what it means to have a right. 
He gave the right to be called children of God. An adoption in the family of God, let me tell you, first of all, it's valuable to you and I because that has exceeding value in the economy of eternity, doesn't it? You could take all the things you're going to get for Christmas and you can list them on one side and you can compare them to your adoption as sons and daughters and you will realize how amazingly valuable is that adoption, right? Again, big screen TV, sons and daughters of the living God. KitchenAid mixer, adopted into the family of God. That great toy you think you want to get, children of God. You see there's no comparison. There's nothing in all creation that can compare to the adoption that we receive by the gift of God in His Son, Jesus Christ, to be made children of the living God. That's the first reason why it's so valuable. The second reason it's valuable is because of the cost that it comes at. Right? John doesn't mention that. He alludes to it in in chapter 1, but he doesn't quite mention exactly what it costs God to give his only son, that we would be called children of God. But as we read through these gospels, we come to find exactly what it cost God the Father and Jesus Christ, his son, that he would come and humble himself, taking on the flesh of human beings, suffering the things we suffer, very God of very God, suffering the things we suffer, being humiliated in his birth in a manger of a human being living a perfect life before God the Father, going to the cross for a death he didn't deserve, taking our sin upon him, being crucified, suffering the wrath of God the Father, being poured out all the condemnation we deserved upon him, body broken, blood poured out, being buried in the ground, all of this so that we might have the right to be called children of God. You see that? I mean, you can go to the store and you could spend hundreds, if not thousands of dollars, and you could think about the costliness of the gifts that you are getting. It will not even compare to the cost that God paid to make rebels his sons and daughters, to make those who were his enemies, those who were against him, those who wanted nothing to do with him, those who were thumbing their noses at him to make them to be sons and daughters of the living king. And so the gift of God in his son, Jesus Christ, is indeed costly and valuable. Listen to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said about this. Bonhoeffer, you may uh, very well know, spoke often about cheap grace and costly grace. And in his description of this grace, he said this, above all, Grace is costly because it costs God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. That's what costly grace is. And so I would submit to you this morning as we conclude that these things should fundamentally change the way that we approach our Christmas morning. Right? God gave his gift of his son Jesus Christ in humility, not based upon merit. He gave it as a costly and valuable gift. If we keep that in mind, 
knowing that that is the ultimate gift. That is the parable that we are living out every December 25th on Christmas morning. That's the picture that we're painting. That's the narrative that we're telling. That's the story that we're part of as we wrap gifts and we give them to one another and we receive them. That's what we're taking part in. And so may as we, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, as as we give and receive gifts, may we keep that in mind, that God gave his only son in this way, that we would receive the right to be called children of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. I thank you, Lord God, that your gift to us was not withheld because you were God and we were against you. You did not withhold it, but you humbled yourself. We thank you, our God, that your gift was not based upon our worthiness, our merit, our sufficiency, or anything in us that made us pleasing to you or desirable to you. I thank you, Lord God, that the gift of your Son was not a cheap gift. It is not cheap grace, but it was a gift, and it is a gift that required everything of you. And yet you made this plan before the foundation of the earth to give of yourself, to come to your creation, to take on human flesh, to walk among us, and then to take our sin upon yourself. And not to make us pay the penalty for our sin, but to gladly and freely pay that penalty for us. And you suffered condemnation and wrath. And you humbled yourself so that we might be called sons and daughters. And so we thank you, our Father. We thank you, Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Spirit. And we ask that you would now be at work through the proclamation of the word and would you be at work in our homes leading up to and on Christmas morning that the way we carry ourselves And the things that we do among one another, that they would declare the majesty, glory, beauty, sufficiency, mercy, and grace of the living God. Would you do this, Lord God, for your glory? We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.